Amen, amen, amen. Uh, Listen, turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And while you're doing that, this morning I want you actually to stand this morning, all right? Let's stand for the scripture reading. And the reason why we want to stand is because, man, Jesus is going to speak to us through the Sermon on the Mount. And, um, and so as he introduces his own sermon, and as Matthew introduces it, um, let us read. And what you're looking for today as we're reading, what are you looking for? You're looking for the eight Beatitudes. Beatitudes is, comes from a Latin word that means uh, blessing, all right? And he keeps saying, blessed are, all right? So Beatitudes means blessing, and that's what we're talking about is blessing. So look for the, the eight Beatitudes in the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. We're starting in chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let us pray. God, thank you for this word. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus not only to take our sin and the penalty of our sin on the cross, but to speak words of life. Holy Spirit, I pray that, that you would make the message paramount, paramount in our hearts, that you would make it uppermost um, in the way that we think, that we would be renewed by the message. And, and God, I pray that you would give me the right words that would honor you, that would encourage, that would make understandable. God, that you would help me to be an appropriate and effective vessel for this important message. And I pray that you would bless our church and bless our ability to follow you in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I feel a little out of whack. I forgot my glasses this morning. I don't have my contacts, and I have my glasses, and I left them somewhere in this building, which means I cannot see you. So you can now go to sleep, and the preacher won't know. But I can read, hallelujah, so that's, that's the good news. I want you to look at verse 2, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 2. Matthew himself, writing his gospel, says this, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Now, that's a very interesting way to put it, don't you think? It's not very efficient communication. If it were you or me in the way we would introduce Jesus' words, we might just say, and he said. You know, like, in fact, some English translations are like, man, forget all this Greek stuff. Just get to the point. And it's, some of your translations might say, and he spoke and said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But Matthew doesn't say that, does he? He says, and he opened his mouth, saying. That sounds redundant to me. Of course he opened his mouth, Matthew. Everybody that speaks opens their mouth. Why would he put it that way? And the reason why he put it that way is because this is a solemn moment. This isn't just anybody who's about to speak to people. This is the one that we call 
King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Matthew is preparing his readers, a church in Antioch, and ultimately us at Crosspoint to receive the words of Jesus as they really are from Jesus Christ and not just any teacher. Matthew has set up the fact that Jesus is the ultimate person in all of the world, that he is the cosmic king and he is bringing a kingdom and kingdom life. And therefore, we who hear, we who read, we who listen to this sermon should understand and never forget that it's not just any teacher who's speaking. The one who opened his mouth is Jesus Christ. That's important. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew opened his gospel by saying that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. In Matthew chapter 1, the angel came to Joseph in a dream and said, Your wife is going to bear a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, the angel said to Joseph, This is the one. In Matthew chapter 2, the Magi came at great distance, traveled thousands of miles, and brought their gifts and laid them at the feet of the Christ child. And what they were saying with their gifts is, this is the one. In Matthew chapter 2, Matthew emphasizes over and over again that Jesus' very life, birth, and his purpose in life was a fulfillment of all scripture. And so Matthew is saying, even scripture is saying, this is the one. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist, looking down his nose at the Pharisees, he looked at sinners and he said, repent and be baptized and prepare yourself because this Jesus Christ, this one who's coming is mightier than I. He is the one. And ultimately, in Matthew chapter 4, even the devil, after 40 days and 40 nights when Jesus was being tempted, even the devil said, you are the son of God. You are the one. And for you and I, Matthew is saying he opened his mouth because he is the one. Can I get an amen? I mean, we should be on TV right now dancing. You know what I'm saying? Because he's the one. I remember when I went to Moody Bible Institute, I had to do practical Christian ministry. And one of my favorite ministries to volunteer for to fulfill my requirements at Bible College was to go into Cook County Jail on Sunday mornings and to preach to residents in various cell blocks. And I went with a group of preachers, and we would all go out throughout different cell blocks. And and here's the thing. I was the only white preacher. Can I get an amen? Amen. And I wore a suit, and I had a tie, and I had nice shoes on, and I fixed my, can you believe I ever owned a suit? I did. And I fixed my hair, and we would go in, man, we went in praying, and we we prayed about the walls of Jericho coming down, and, and we went in there, and here's the way it was set up. The way it was set up is you would go into a different cell block, and all of the residents would be in a general area sitting at tables, almost looked like a cafeteria almost, except not nearly as nice, and they'd be playing cards, or they'd be sitting and talking. And they didn't have to listen to me. And what I had to do to talk to him on a Sunday morning and to preach in the jail is I had to stand in a cage. And the bars went all the way around me. And it was like, you guys are out there. And there was bars like right here. I had no room to move. Can you imagine me not being able to move? And I had to stand in that cage and I had to look at them. And nobody told those guys that they had to listen to me. They could ignore me. They could curse me. They could, uh, they could try to intimidate me. And so I had to stand in that cage, and I had to get their attention. Now, you don't get the attention of residents at Cook County Jail by going, Hey, guys, are you guys okay? I have a word from the Lord. You know what I mean? You know what you got to do? You got to stand up in that cage and go, Hey, put down your cards. Put down your distractions. And then sometimes this would work. Sometimes it didn't. It didn't always work. But I would say, I come to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And sometimes they'd be like, whoa, little dude's preaching today, right? (laughs) And hopefully, a lot of Sundays, they, they were willing to put down their cards, and then they would listen to me preach. This is why I love you guys so much. You're so nice. Matthew is saying, when he says, and he opened his mouth, he's saying, put down your cards. Put down your distractions, Put down everything else that you think is more important than what God has to say to your life. 
Put down what the world says is blessing and what the world says is happiness. Put down all of that stuff and listen up. Hey, Matthew is saying. You put it all down and listen to what the king has said because this is the one and he has come to be of great benefit, of great help, of great liberation for you and your life. So listen up. You know, what's the Bible say? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And that's not just like I hear it. That's like I am engaged in hearing from the voice of God. And when you do that, something powerful is going to happen. And so when we come to him, we say, okay, what's Jesus want to give to me? What's he want to talk to me about? And what he wants to talk to us about is blessing. What is real blessing? What is, well, let me put it to you this way. What is real happiness? Now, there's two kinds of happiness that you and I experience. I call it, there's a higher and a lower form of happiness. In culture, there's a lower form of blessing and happiness. And let me tell you what that is. The world and culture says that the way to be happy is to forget that you're unhappy. The way to be blessed is to forget that you're not approved by God. That you have, that you're lost eternally. The world tries to distract us, and the more we're distracted, the happier we think we are because we're forgetting that we're really not that happy. We try to focus on lower forms of blessing to forget that we don't have the ultimate blessings in life. That's what you and I are tempted by every single day. And what Jesus wants to give us is a higher form of blessing. And the higher form of blessing is to actually give you something that is real, that that you don't need a distraction for, that actually heals and brings happiness and joy, not based on circumstances or money or what's in the bank account, but on who he is making you to be. Note that these beatitudes, these blessings, are focused on our character. They're focused on our heart. You're like, I don't want the lower form of it. I'm sick of trying to forget that I'm unhappy. I want to become a real person, a real human being like God meant to be. Jesus is giving us character, kingdom character. He is shaping our hearts. He's giving us something that nobody else can see, but is in us and grows and becomes some, something that's real. That's why these eight Beatitudes are so awesome. And so when Jesus opens his mouth and begins to speak, he gives us two things that will take us to the higher form of blessing so that we can ignore the lower form of blessing. The first thing he gives us is kingdom character. Jesus says, you want to really be blessed? Let's just forget what the world says is blessing. You really want to be blessed? You want the real deal, like life abundantly. I've come, he said, that they might have life and have it more abundantly. You want that? Here it is. Here's the way. Here's the characteristics that mark people who are really blessed. And he gives eight of them. Now, here's the thing. The sequence of the eight Beatitudes is intentional. The sequence. It's not random. He's not like just throwing things out there like sometimes I do when I preach. You know, like he's making this up as he goes. Like Jesus is very intentional. And the sequence is like a domino effect. Here's what I believe. If you get the first beatitude of blessing, it leads to all of the other ones in your life. It's like a domino effect. Secondly, about the beatitudes, the eight beatitudes, is that the first four focus on our relationship with God. And the second four beatitudes focus on characteristics in our relationship with people. And that order is important. By the way, you need God a lot to make people work in your life. Amen? You need God, a relationship with God, to make relationship with people work. And so when you look at it that way, that there's a sequence, that first four deal with God, the second four deal with people, then you're ready to hear what God or what Jesus has to say about kingdom character that he is building into our lives and into the lives of people who experience him. And the first one is the most important beatitude. You you cannot have the rest of the Sermon on the Mount without this first one. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You want what Jesus has. If you want what God wants you to have, if you want real blessing, the secret is not going up into pride. It's going down into humility. 
The way to ascend to God is to go down before God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By the way, that word poor, that, that's no like casual word. Like you and I think about being poor and we're like, I can't go on vacation this year. You know what I mean? Like I can't go on vacation because we're so poor. You know, forget that. Okay, poor in the ancient world was, I don't know where the next meal is going to come from that's going to keep me alive for tomorrow. That's what the word poor means. It means such impoverishment and poverty that you become completely dependent on some miraculous provision of food. That's what poverty meant in the ancient world. And still in many parts of the world, that's what poverty means, doesn't it? Now, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What's he saying? Those people who realize that what God has for them cannot be earned but must be received because we're so spiritually bankrupt that it's going to take grace. It's going to take God giving us what we have not earned. It's going to take us getting what we cannot do through religion. You see, religion makes proud people. This beatitude makes humble people. Religion makes proud people who can't be a blessing to other people. Grace and the reality of a relationship with Jesus makes us poor in spirit so that we receive what only God can do. This is so counterintuitive, isn't it? The opening line of the greatest ethical message or speech given to humanity ever. We're talking about golden rule. Lord's Prayer, and the opening line, Jesus says, if you think that you've got what it takes to do what I'm about to tell you, you must be insane. The only ones who get what I have are those who admit that they're utterly, totally dependent on my grace and forgiveness and, and, and what I have to offer. That's so important. The Bible says that on a spiritual level, we are in debt to God, are we not? The wages of sin is death. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. It's only when the Holy Spirit makes us utterly aware of that debt that we can receive what God has for us in Jesus Christ. Religion will come to us and it will say, you know, you need to do the Sermon on the Mount. You just need to do it. And Jesus is like, you just need to surrender in order to do what I have to tell you. Some of us... I always like to say, you know, some people are, are just good enough to be dangerous to their spiritual life. You know what I'm saying? They're just moral enough to miss it. Some of us, we've come to church. We've grown up in religion. We had hymns sung over our bassinets. And we're just moral enough to think, you know what? I might be more deserving of grace than that person. And let me tell you what that is. That's playing church. It's playing church. But being the church is a community that says, I'm no more deserving of God's grace than anybody else. And if God had not provided the bread of life in his son, Jesus Christ, I would have starved going on into eternity. If God had not sent his son to die for my sins, then I would not be forgiven. There would be no atonement. There would be no connection between me and God. There is no kingdom of heaven. By the way, download in that phrase, kingdom of heaven, justification by faith alone. Download in that phrase, kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Download into that phrase, kingdom of heaven, not only that God is ruling in our heart presently, but that God will bring a new heavens and a new earth for all the poor in spirit who came to Jesus and fell down at his feet and said, if you don't save me, I won't be saved. That is the way into the kingdom. It's not working our way up. It's working our way down. Jesus, or pardon me, Isaiah had prophesied that when the Messiah would come, he would come to the poor and to the contrite in spirit. Isaiah 61 verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. You're like, my heart's not broken. Yes, it is. Your heart's ripped in two. 
You might, you might be so distracted right now by the world that you've forgotten how unhappy you are with your brokenness and your broken heart. Your heart was broken by other people and their sin, and your heart was broken because you sinned against other people. Your heart is broken because you've been deceived, and your heart is broken because you've been a deceiver. Your heart is broken, and you know it if you get honest with God. And Jesus comes to the brokenhearted to heal. How can he heal somebody who doesn't even know that they need to be healed? He came to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. You say, I I need to be renewed. I mean, I I don't want to go through the status quo. I don't want to play church. I would rather never go to church again than play church. I don't want to play preacher man or be a pastor and, and, and the anointed one. I'm sick of status quo. I'm sick of nominal Christianity. I'm sick of this kind of bankrupt approach to God. And the way to get out of it is to come before God and to say, man, I am brokenhearted. And I'm unafraid to finally face that because I believe, Jesus, you will heal me. You will help me. You will forgive me. Jesus is glancing in that first beatitude. He is glancing at all of those people he just healed. Look at, look at Matthew 4 in verse 23. This was right before he preached this sermon. He went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine these people, man? Every affliction. And his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And the prophecy was that when the Messiah would come, that the lame would leap, that the paralyzed would walk, that the blind would see, that the deaf would hear. And Jesus is looking at all those who the temple said, you can't come in because you can't walk. You can't come in because you're filled with leprosy. You can't come into the temple and worship God because you're blind. And Jesus heals them in a moment and he looks at them and he says, yours is the kingdom of heaven because I've come to give the kingdom of heaven to those who don't deserve it. He's glancing to the broken and he's encouraging them and he's comforting them and he says, get up, I'm going to take you in. I'm going to get you into the kingdom of heaven. Ah, but he's also glancing at the proud, at the Pharisee. And he's saying, be warned, Pharisee. Be warned, all you who think that you've earned the right. Be warned, all of you who think that you're not lame, that you're not paralyzed, that you don't have spiritual leprosy. Be warned, because you might be surprised when you stand at the judgment seat and say, I cast out demons in your name. And I look at you and I said, I never knew you. You were too proud. You didn't need a physician. You didn't need healing. You didn't need a Messiah. You were too good for me. In fact, he's glancing at them and he knows, you're the very ones that will crucify me. Religion will kill me. Beware. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And if you came in today and you're like, I have no idea why in the world I'm in a church, or would even presume to think. That God could ever use me or work in me or save me or forgive me or whatever it is that you Christians talk about. You're the very ones that God wants to encourage. But if you came in here and you thought that you earned it or deserved it, let this word humble you. Stop playing church. And be the church, a community of people, poor in spirit. Now, once you got that, man... I mean, once you got that beatitude, everything just starts falling like a domino. All the rest of them just naturally flow and fall down. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Then he says, naturally, once you're poor in spirit, of course you begin to mourn. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Why is mourning a natural consequence of being poor in spirit? Because you begin to look at your sin, and you look at your flaws, and you look at your lack, and you begin to weep over it. You begin to go, oh my gosh. I love, oh, I'm so tempted, second service. I got all the rest of the afternoon. I'm so tempted to go to Isaiah 6, but I won't because I want you to enjoy today. <laughs> but you know, Isaiah, remember Isaiah? Isaiah's chapters 1 through 5, he just preaches at the nation. He goes, woe is you. You steal stuff. Woe is you because you worship false idols. Woe is you because you're so horrible. I mean, Isaiah is wax and eloquent, great preacher, uh, intellectual, uh, communicating artist, uh, genius, beautiful sermons, and he's just woeing everybody to hell. You know what I mean? He's just, woe is you and woe is you. And then in Isaiah 6, he gets into the temple of God and he sees the holiness of God. He sees what God really is, which is far bigger than he imagined, even as a religious, seminary-educated, Ph.D. pastor. He realized God was much holier than he thought. And you know what the first thing he said was? Woe is me. Woe is me. God. Oh, my God. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. We mourn over our sin, and the moment we mourn over our sin, we then begin to mourn appropriately, by the way, the sin of our nation, the sin of our culture. We are broken. We are broken before the holiness of God. And we mourn. And Jesus said, I will comfort you in your mourning. I will show you my forgiveness the moment you begin to weep and desperate. That's when the angel, the seraphim, comes down and touches our lips with that coal of sacrifice and cleanses our unclean lips. That's when we have the hope that God in Jesus Christ will come as that flying seraphim and will bring the coal of atonement to all those who believe. And we begin to be comforted by what Jesus is doing. Blessed are those who mourn. And here we are in a culture that says blessed are those who laugh all the time. Blessed are those jokesters. Blessed are all those crude jokes. Blessed are those who ha, 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 and go to the house of partying every single day and never allow themselves to go to the house of mourning. They are the ones who are missing out on real happiness. It's a mere distraction, trying to forget that they're unhappy. But Jesus says, don't do it. That's the natural consequence. What did Paul say? Paul said in... um, Romans chapter 7, the great apostle Paul, he really the Isaiah of the New Testament. That's what Paul is. He's Isaiah in the New Testament, a genius. And yet here he says one of the most remarkable statements that we would not expect. Verse 24, chapter 7, wretched man that I am. There you go. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I mean, he's so broken. He says, this body of death is on me. This body of death is on me. In, the, in those days, one of the worst forms of, of, of punishment would be to put a criminal out in the middle of a desert and they would tie an actual dead body to him and let him slowly die as the disease of the dead body would seep into his live body and Paul is feeling the mourning of his sin like that dead he's carrying the weight of that dead body of sin from the original Adam from our original father and from Adam comes into us seeping that poison of that dead body it begins to seep into our skin and into our system so that slowly we die and Paul is saying wretched man that I am who will save me and the comfort comes in Jesus Christ will save you. Jesus will take the body of death and will put it on the cross. Jesus will die and literally heal you from your iniquities by his stripes. We are healed. Amen. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But you see, we're playing church. 
Nobody mourns over sin anymore. We justify it. We explain it away. It's like, God's going to accept me just as I am. He might meet you where you're at. Can I get an amen? But he needs to atone for your sin. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Here's the third. Again, natural consequence of the first two. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Now, this is an interesting one. Meek, meekness, by the way, is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. So meekness, again, just like me going before those, 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 those residents at Cook County Jail, meekness is not like, I'm going to be meek, and so I will be very quiet. It's not meekness. Meekness, though, is a gentleness and an approach to human relationships that sees them on the same plane with you. Now, once you've been poor in spirit and you've mourned over your sin, you begin to look at other people and relationships around you with a heart that understands where we're all coming from. We're all coming from the same place of brokenness. We're all coming from the same place of sin. And we begin to treat each other gently, even if we have to confront each other. Even if we have to have conversations that are difficult, we begin to become meek people. And we inherit the earth. And the reason why we inherit the earth is, number one, is Jesus is going to bring the new heavens and the new earth and we're going to reign with him. But we also begin to inherit the earth now. We're the ones that get to enjoy life more than anybody else. We can finally stop and enjoy a nice fresh breeze. We can finally stop and walk because we're not grabbing onto life so hard or trying to justify ourselves or trying to, or trying to make life. We, we, we stop being busybodies and we start being balanced and we know what work is and we know what Sabbath is and we know what rest is. We begin to inherit the earth because we finally get to look around and enjoy what we have. Meek people are the ones that inherit the earth both now and in the world to come. They shall inherit the earth. Here's the fourth. In the first four Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Righteousness is a powerful word, a word that's forgotten and that Christians don't even like to talk about anymore. There's three ideas with righteousness in the Bible. The first is a legal idea, my legal standing before God, legally, before his court, before his tribunal, I am guilty. I'm unrighteous. But the Bible says that by faith in Christ, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to my account so that when the Father judges me by faith, God will declare me righteous in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? That's the legal understanding. The second understanding of righteousness in the Bible is the moral standing of righteousness. The moral understanding of righteousness is what's right and wrong based upon the law and the declaration of God. God determines what is sin and what's not, what's right, what's wrong, what's light, what's darkness. God is the one who determines what is right. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what God declares to be right. The third idea behind righteousness is social righteousness. In other words, fighting for the oppressed, fighting to make sure that everybody that's within our realm gets a fair shake in society and in life. There's a righteous social justice righteousness that the Bible talks about that makes sure that as far as we are able, we give everybody the right to life like everybody else. For example, we like to think, or I like to think of myself as, Asking God, what can I do to protect the rights of the unborn? Right? That's social justice. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for all three of those forms of righteousness. And what I really like about the way he communicates this, of course, I like everything in every way that Jesus communicates, but I like the fact that he says hungers and thirsts because he recognizes that we're never going to be perfect in this. That we're growing. We are all in process. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But let me tell you. Once we are poor in spirit, mourning over our sin. Once we have received new life in Christ by the Holy Spirit. We naturally are convicted when we fall short of righteousness. And we naturally want to grow. We might not be what we should be. But we want to be something more. We are desiring and thirsting and hungering for more of what God has for our life. Isn't that true? That's the difference between my life before Christ and my life after Christ. It wasn't I believed in Jesus and suddenly I became a perfect good boy. 
It was, I believed in Jesus and I wanted to grow. Before I met Jesus, I wasn't convicted about wrong things in my life. I wasn't convicted about those things. But after Jesus, I had a conviction every time I sinned. And I hungered and thirsted for something more. And that's what happens. Now, let me just stop really quick. This is like not even the halfway point of the sermon. Can I get an amen? These, thank you. That's so nice. You can come back, whoever that was. Thank you, random citizen. Uh, no, here's the thing. Four, the first four tell us something about what a blessed life is. And let me tell you what it is in summary. Jesus says to be content with what you have, but not content with who you are. That is the secret to happiness and to blessing. Be content with what you have, but not who you are. Now, the world twists that. See, the world, the world does the opposite. The world says, be content with who you are. In fact, you can be anything you want to be. You can be any gender you want to be. You can be any person you want to be. You can, you, can, you can go into any bathroom you want to go into, right? And this, I mean, let's be honest. Let's not play church. Let's be honest. That's what's happening. But that's what's always happened. The world has always said that. Be whatever you want to do. Follow your feelings. Do your desire. In Zootopia, you can be anything you want to be. If you don't like being an elephant, you can be a giraffe. But the world says you better have more stuff, though. You don't have enough stuff. Every major event you watch on TV, every advertising, that's all it'll say. Be whoever you want, but you need more stuff. You need a better car. You need a better house. You need better design. You need to be trendier. You need to be hipper. Be discontent with what you have. Jesus says, no, no, no. Be content with what you have, but not who you are. God is making you who he has called you to be. And that is the secret to blessing. That is the secret to grace and forgiveness and love and the gospel and Jesus on a cross. And his resurrection is that we might be delivered from our own bondages and what we think is our definitions of life, when we might finally come into captivity to God our creator and let him shape and form us into the people he wants to be. And some of us, man, we've been so trapped by the world and Jesus is inviting you out of the trap. He's inviting you out of the world. Come out of darkness into his light. Come out to the real blessing. And the real blessing is that. God in Jesus Christ brings a kingdom that is different than culture. But... That being said, once God works these things out, these kingdom characteristics in our heart, he begins to call us to live out kingdom characteristics within culture, not outside of culture. And so we go to the second four Beatitudes. Look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is a word that is love expressed to those in desperate need. We become merciful in the gospel of grace because we see that God has been compassionate and merciful towards us in sin. We become more compassionate. We want to help people. We become more merciful. That's why he says you will receive mercy because it's obviously a sign that you've experienced mercy and grace when you're showing mercy and grace. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let me move a little faster here. Again, domino effect. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, talks about the pure in heart. And the question, the question is this. When your mind is in neutral, what are you thinking about? When your mind is in neutral, what do you naturally kind of flow your thoughts to? Because whatever it is, that is your idol. We look to things to do for us what only God can do. And so when our mind goes into neutral, we go to functional saviors. We go to, God, we go to idols, whether it's our children or our money or our things or our job. But when we're delivered by grace, what begins to happen, and it's a slow, we're all still growing in this now. We begin to think about God and God's way of thinking about reality. We begin to see people and reality the way God does. And therefore, we see the face of God. We see who God is, and we begin to understand why God does things the way he does, because we become pure in heart. This particular beatitude really resonates like a refrain throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus talks about lust, he's, that's this. 
When Jesus talks about anger, that's this. When Jesus talks about private prayer, that's this. Pure in heart, pure in heart. And a blessing is the, listen, a blessed life is to be able to see people the way God sees them. A blessed life is to be able to see reality, reality. You know, it's not religion, it's relationship. It's not religion, it's reality. That's what the gospel is doing. It's it's helping us to see things the way they are really meant to be seen. All of life, our daily life, that's what happens. That's That's an outflow of all this grace we're receiving. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, here's the next one. Love this one. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Significantly, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. What are peacekeepers? Peace at any cost. The avoidance of all conflict. The avoid, I'm just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hide. And maybe it'll go away. Maybe if I just keep the peace and not engage in this conflict, it'll just kind of go away. No, 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 that's not, that's peacekeeper. Here's the peacemaker. Hey, man, let's, let's make sure we got a harmonious relationship. Let, 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 let's make sure that this relationship isn't fake right now. Like, let's, let's get into the real story and let's resolve our conflicts By the way, we are not prepared to be peacemakers until we see through the first four Beatitudes that God has made peace with us through Jesus Christ. Until we are shaped by the gospel, what uh, Ephesians chapter uh, 2 verses 13 and following declares how Jesus made peace with us. He wasn't a peacekeeper. He didn't come to say, pat us on the head, you're good, it's okay, we're not going to have any conflict. No, the conflict is the cross. He makes peace. Verse 13, chapter 2 of Ephesians, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, and so thus making peace. And might reconcile us both to God. In other words, Jesus by his cross brings Jews and Gentiles together so they can worship the Messiah together. And Jesus by the cross establishes peace with us and God. Jesus by the cross can be a peacemaker in racial unity. Jesus can be a peacemaker by our spiritual unity with God. He brings peace to the church. And no doubt, Matthew was very interested in the Sermon on the Mount for the church in Antioch, which were the first readers of Matthew. Hey, guys, hey, guys, hey, guys in the church, be peacemakers. You will be called sons of God. People will look at you and they'll see Jesus when you're a peacemaker. One more. I love this one. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is in the present tense in both the eighth and the first beatitude. All the other ones seem to be future in promise, but ours is the kingdom of heaven when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. There's the persecution of tongue and there's the persecution of sword. Either way it hurts. But here's why I love this last beatitude. Because we think, because we're American, this is the way I think. We think, you know, if I love God and if I love Jesus and if I'm a peacemaker and if I'm merciful... If I have kingdom characteristics born by the Holy Spirit, born out of my union with Jesus Christ, if if I begin to manifest these things and begin to work out what God has put into me by grace, then everybody is really going to like me a lot. It would only be natural. Why wouldn't people like me? Why wouldn't they pat me on the head or give me a hug and say, thank you, thank you for being like God. Thank you for being peaceful and merciful. Thank you for being truthful. But Jesus gives us a realistic picture and he brings us comfort because he says there's going to be times when you're rejected, you're rejected for what you believe. You're rejected for following Jesus. 
And I want you to know something. When you're rejected, that does not mean that you have lost the approval or the blessing of God. In fact, it might be the very sign that you're more approved than ever before. You're more blessed than ever before by God. Because sometimes God's approval and blessing doesn't feel very good. It doesn't, it's not like an emotional, happy experience all the time. It's a joy and a happiness that transcends circumstances. And he's saying sometimes by following Jesus, just because you follow Jesus, things aren't going to practically work out. And so in those moments, don't ever forget, I am with you always to the end of the age. I will bring the kingdom for you. Your king, the kingdom of God has been poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit every single day. Look in and experience that when you're being persecuted. Now, the question for some of us, though, is are we living out our faith in such a way to where it's possible that we could be persecuted? That's the larger question. Jesus makes sure that our Christianity is not a privatized, personal experience that we experience in some corner somewhere. Christianity is not like a restaurant we go to and we just get to go on the corner table by ourselves and just enjoy a good meal just for ourselves. He makes sure that we understand that the reason why we're being blessed with kingdom character is to live it out in culture so people see it and they hear it and they experience it. That's the larger question. Am I living, is it possible I could be persecuted? Not that I'm asking for it. I'm not going to go around. I mean, Jesus is not trying to get us all to go around and seek out persecution. Can I get an amen? Like, don't be a jerk. But are you living out your faith in such a way to where people could disagree with you? Or have you avoided disagreement so much now that you're not working out what God has put in? Hmm. That's a hard question, isn't it? He goes on to say, let me finish this out. He says two things. He says, all right, not only am I working in you kingdom character, but also happiness resides in having kingdom influence in the world. He uses two parables to close it out. He says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Again, all of these principles will be drawn out very practically in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But he says two things. You have kingdom influence because you are, if I say, I am. That's not like a might be or could be. He's not saying you could be salt of the earth. He's saying in Christ, this is who you are. You are the salt of the earth. And what does salt do? Salt's a preservative. Salt slows down corruption. Salt on meat, before they had refrigerated freezers and all that stuff we do with our meat, they put salt on it so that it would preserve it as long as possible. It would slow down corruption. Now, salt doesn't get rid of corruption. It just slows it down. And he says, by living in culture and by living out kingdom characteristics, just being who you are in Christ, you will at least slow down corruption in the world. Amen? You're not going to get rid of it, but you're going to slow it down. It's kind of like when I go and play golf with people, you know, I'm a pastor. And so if I play with a stranger in particular, none of my church members will cuss around me. But when I, most church members won't cuss around me. You know, you go, I'll go play golf and I'll play with some random person, you know. And I'll be like, hello, John. And John's like, hello. I say, what do you do? He says, you know, I don't know. I'm I'm a butcher, you know. And he says to me, what do you do? I say, I'm a pastor. And he's like, oh. And then he starts hitting bad shots. You know what I'm saying? And at first, he's able to kind of control it. Because, you know, John's like, oh, my, oh, you know. And there's this guttural thing going on in his life. But then later on, it'll come out. be like, beep. And it'll be like, I'm sorry. You know what I mean? By the 18th hole, he's saying sorry five or six times. You know what I mean? Now, by him saying sorry, it doesn't get rid of his problem with his mouth, but it slows him down. He at least acknowledges, this isn't good in my life, right? Now, that's a stupid illustration to really tell you that as you let Christ work these characteristics of beatitudes in you, as you're at work, you'll slow it down just enough. And maybe by just slowing down that corruption enough in somebody's life, it'll give them a shot. To think in a ways that they never thought of before. But not only are we to be a preservative, we are to be a proclaiming church. 
He says, you are the light of the world. So we can't get away with saying, I'll just be a good person for Jesus and let that be enough. He says, no, you are the light of the world. And light in the Bible always stands for truth. The truth comes out. The truth is shared. The truth is witnessed. As a church, as a group, for sure, in our community, we exist to tell people about Jesus Christ, but also as followers. I mean, I am encouraged when he says, you are the light of the world. In Greek, it is a plural pronoun, which the way we translate that here at Crosspoint is y'all. Amen? Y'all, together in community, you are the light of the world. You get to proclaim the truth of the gospel so that others will believe. But listen to me. Listen to me. There's no way Jesus is calling us to a bubble Christianity, to a holy huddle, to a us versus them. No matter what happens, we have to engage people. We have to be a church that engage people that don't know God, that are unchurched. We have to engage people and tell them about Christ through our witness and through our life. Now, that was a sermon preached much too long, but let me just say this. Jesus heals broken people to heal a broken world. That's what's at stake here. You're experiencing God's love and forgiveness because other people desperately want it. You know everybody around you, even when they don't know they know it, they need it. They want it. They want what you have in Christ, I promise you. And you and I have to pray about that. This is who you are in Christ. This is not who you might be or could be. All of this is in you. You have all of these blessings right now. There's nothing left for you to do to get these blessings or these beatitudes. They are there. Ephesians 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. That means it's all there, all ready to be appropriated. The, the grace, the mercy, the peace, the purity, it's all there by the Holy Spirit. The only question is, what is distracting you from appropriating and working out what God has put into your life because a lot of people's lives are at stake because you are the light of the world. You know, when I, when I start losing valuable things, usually that means I'm disorganized. It's not because I don't have the valuable thing anymore. It's because I need to clean out some clutter to find it. My girls always come to me, I lost my Barbie, I lost my Barbie. She's gone. You know, they're crying. They're not in the service. I, can, I didn't do this in the first service. And I'm like, the Barbie is in your room. I promise you. No, it's not. It's really not. So I'm like, I will go up. You know what I go up? I go into a room, and I find a room that Tarzan couldn't get through, right? And you kind of move. Put this over here, and you put the little crib over here, and you grab the little baby and put it over here. And guess what's underneath all that clutter and that mess? The Barbie. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You have this stuff. You've got it. All you got to do is just sometimes, every now and then, clean the room. Get the clutter out of the way to receive all that God has you. So you can be a healed person that goes and heals a broken world. Let us pray.